Dillon. I serve here as one of the pastors. And um, I'm going to be preaching today from Matthew 6, uh, verses 14 through 15. We're getting to the end of the Lord's Prayer here. Um, We all have an interesting common experience. The first is that we all have dreams. Most of us have dreams when we sleep, right? Sometimes some of us daydream, uh, and you are probably more productive than most of us. But mostly all of us dream at night, right? Uh, Even kids among us have dreams. Am I right about that? We all have dreams. And some of us remember them a little bit better than others. So uh, my wife, Kate, tends to remember her dreams. Uh, I, on the other hand, am very forgetful. She'll tell me about a dream she had, and I'm like, I have no clue. I think I had a dream, but I don't actually remember what I dreamed. Um, So I'm sure that covers pretty much everybody here. Either you have very vivid dreams that you remember, or if you're like me, a lot of times you just forget them. Um, But I I found it kind of interesting. I was reading a book uh, the other day, and there's actually some dreams even that a vast majority of people have in common. And so I wonder if you've had this dream. People sometimes call it the missed test dream. So it goes something like this. You're living your ordinary life and everything's going well. Then all of a sudden you have this earth-shaking realization and you're terrified in your sleep, even though you're sleeping, that you've missed a class or you've missed an announcement or you just forgot that there was a test. I see some heads nodding that you've had this dream and so you've just confirmed the theory. We, a lot of us have had this dream. Um, It's interesting that it even happens for people who aren't in school anymore. So many of us go to school, you have this, it kind of makes sense because you're going in through classes yourself. But then after, you're thinking, why would I be worried about a test? But it still happens nonetheless. I guess that's just how traumatizing school is. I'm not sure. Um, But I picked up this book and I was reading from it. The lesson from the book was that uh, we get nervous about things that we don't write down. So write down the things that you're nervous about so that you're not having to worry about them in your dreams. Um, But in introducing today's sermon, I want to take a little bit of a different angle on this. And just to make this simple point is that if there is a test, we don't want to miss it. If there's a test, we don't want to miss it. We want to be prepared and not caught off guard if there is a test that comes. And so, when you know that a test is coming, we want to mark it and be ready for it. So this morning, we're going to address a test that is in the Lord's Prayer. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read from the Lord's Prayer, from verses 9 through 15. Uh, But today's sermon is going to be primarily on the last couple of verses there that kind of round out the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15. But I'm going to read the entirety of it just so that we have our bearings on on the context here. Uh, If you have one of those hardback black Bibles around you, you can find this, I think, on page 811. Page 811. So the Lord's Prayer goes like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But 
if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So like I said, we're going to focus on verses 14 and 15 here. Um, and you might have picked out the test, the test in the Lord's Prayer. And it relates to a massive topic that we're just going to call forgiveness. Um, specifically, our forgiveness of others. Um, if you've missed the past couple of Sundays, uh, we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer, kind of walk, treating it as, as part of a smaller section of the longer uh, Sermon on the Mount. So this is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. And so if Jesus was standing up here preaching, don't you think you would want to listen? Um, we actually have those, the words of Jesus in a sermon written down, and we just read part of it. So uh, I think it interests us to listen to what Jesus says, but we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount just step by step. And for three straight chapters, what we have is Jesus teaching about how life is lived in his kingdom. Jesus is the king, and he's telling his kingdom subjects how they ought to live. And he gives us some insights, one, into who the king is, who God is, who Jesus is. He's telling us about his very own character. Uh, but then most of the sermon actually goes into how followers of this king ought to live their lives. And so there's a lot of ethical teachings, like how you ought to live your life in this world. And when we get to Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus is, is really teaching about a broader category that we can call religious hypocrisy. So a lot of us are familiar with this. Most of us don't like hypocrites, even if we are one. But Jesus is speaking to this, and he gives his followers a strong warning about religion as a show. We appreciate this, and we also want to follow Jesus' words here. And so, in short, we could say that following Jesus is actually not meant to be an outward show of looking impressive to others. That's what the hypocrites were doing. Following Jesus, in fact, is an inward shattering of your perceived impressiveness before God. It's not an outward show, but it's an inward shattering of who you are. And then it kind of goes outward. It's an outward shining of his praise to the world. That's what it's meant. That's what life best lived in God's kingdom is like. But here, Jesus moves on, and he goes on into the particular topic of prayer. So if you look just before this passage in verse 7, Jesus is speaking to some kind of religious hypocrites. And he says that prayer is not to be done in order to be seen by others. It's not to be done to look impressive. You're not trying to get an amen to your prayer. That's not what prayer is supposed to be about. In verse 7, we see that prayer is not simply phrases that we use or the amount of words that we do or the amount of words that we say, prayers to be done before God and seeking the benefits that only God can give. That's what prayer is supposed to be. Then our prayers, when we articulate them, are to be done so with a desire to honor God and to submit our lives to him. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what we have learned about prayer so far. But here, when we get to the end of the Lord's Prayer, we get to a test. It's kind of in the prayer, but Jesus gets back to it. So here we have the test of forgiveness. And when we get to this part, it can be a little bit jarring to us. It's not what we expect when we get here on this section of prayer. To many of us, it seems like it's right to praise God. That's what happens at the beginning of this prayer. It might even seem right to present our needs to God. But what's this stuff about forgiveness of others? What does that have to do with our prayers? And how does that impact us 
Well, here's what I think Jesus is trying to get across to us. Here's what I think Jesus is teaching. Your forgiveness of others is a test of God's forgiveness of you. Your forgiveness of others is a test of God's forgiveness of you. So what do I mean by test? Well, there are minor tests and there's major tests. Um, I referenced tests earlier. So one thing we can test is knowledge, right? Many of us are familiar with this. This happens in school, and many of us are familiar with this kind of testing. Uh, So you might have a minor quiz in a class, or you might have a major final exam, right? So do different kinds of tests. Um, But we can test many other things. So you can test something like electricity. Uh, They make these little testers that you can test the outlets or the receptacles in your home to see if there's electricity in them, right? Pretty small tool, you can test electricity there. But on a larger scale, someone can test the amount of electricity that it takes to power the city of Boston. A little bit of a bigger scale, right? Different tests. Uh, We can also test bridges. I would hope that you do that. So if you go on a trail, a walking trail, you might want to test the reliability of these walking bridges before you just go off across them. A lot of times it's old wood, and I'm not trusting those things. So that's a good test you should take and apply to your life. It might save your ankle. Um, But you can also test other things. This is beyond my capability and many of us here. But you can test a bridge like the Zakem Bridge in Boston. Many cars drive across that every single day. It's right next to TD Garden, massive. Many of our uh, T-shirts that we have in Boston, they have this bridge on them. makes it look cool. Uh, But I would hope that somebody's testing that bridge before all of us drive across it, and we just trust it. So in a similar kind of way, Jesus is giving us a test, but here it's a different kind of test than those. It's a test of genuine forgiveness on the personal scale. So on the small scale, on the interpersonal scale, that tests the presence of a much larger genuine forgiveness on an eternal scale. Both are serious, and they both relate to one another. So here, Jesus gives us an inward heart test. So the principle is this. If God has forgiven you, then you also ought to forgive others. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. If God has forgiven you, then you also ought to forgive others. And the test is this. Are you forgiving others? Now, I recognize forgiveness is a massive topic, and even bringing it up might bring up some hurts. It might bring up some challenges in your current life. And I just want to recognize that it is certainly easier to talk about than it is to practice in our lives. You know, as the saying goes, it's always easier said than done. Well, this truly applies to forgiveness. Um, So in the sermon today, I'm not going to be able to cover all the different questions that you might have about forgiveness. Um, But... I do want to just give you a resource that, if this is something you're interested in, in following up and learning some more about, um, Tim Keller, many of you have heard of this guy as a pastor, um, passed away last year. And as far as I know, this was the last book that he had published. And I think it's, it's an appropriate book, an appropriate topic for our time as it relates to our culture and in a lot of our lives. And so if you're interested, this might be something that you pick up if you have more questions. So I'm just going to scratch the surface, but I did want to commend that to you if you're interested in learning more. So with the allotted time that we have, I'm only going to be able to address the heart of the issue. So there's many questions surrounding forgiveness. We're just going to look at this. I'm I'm going to address two primary realms of forgiveness, um, what these two verses teach in verses 14 and 15. The first is the forgiveness that God gives. The second is the forgiveness that we give. 
So the forgiveness that God gives and the forgiveness that we give. First, the forgiveness that God, that God gives. So Jesus says <clears throat> right here at the end of the sermon on the, well, right at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this comes immediately after the Lord's Prayer. We've hammered that home. It's like Jesus takes out a highlighter. We just said the prayer, and we prayed the prayer, maybe, and we're wondering why that was there. It's like Jesus is anticipating our question, like a master teacher. Wouldn't you know it? He's God. Um, but he's reiterating this line at the end of the prayer, and he's highlighting this section on forgiveness. So you could just look up and see in verse 12 that Jesus gives us the first spiritual need that we have before God. He prays that we might have our, he tells us to pray for our daily bread, but then he has a spiritual need, and that's one of forgiveness. The base reality for all of us is that we need to be forgiven of our sins, and that's what Jesus is saying here in this prayer. But he also says immediately after that in the prayer, it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So the prayer, in a way, expects that followers of Jesus actively forgive those who sin against them. It is the ordinary way of life for the Christian. And so that makes us ask a question, right? It can be kind of confusing. Why is that part about forgiveness in there? So I recognize that even after Jesus gives us an explanation, it can be a little bit confusing. And I had a question too. So the big question is this, is, is Jesus teaching some kind of tit for tat forgiveness? As in like, if you do this, then I'll do this. Is God like that? If so, then does God forgive on the basis of our forgiveness? Is Jesus saying that God forgives if and only if we forgive others? We could ask, is this some kind of works-based salvation that Jesus is teaching? And I believe that the answer to all of those questions is an emphatic no. Jesus is not teaching a works-based salvation. We do not earn God's forgiveness through our forgiveness of others. Here's why I say that. First off, in the original language, uh, the langu it's a little bit less forceful than the English transla translation seems. It's less like an if-then statement. It's, it suggests something a little bit different. It's not as if Jesus is saying that the first thing must happen in order for the second thing to happen. So you forgive someone else, and then God forgives others. That would be a work before God, right? You have to do this before you're uh, forgiven of your sins. They both happen together, is what he's saying. These are things that happen in unison. They're almost indistinguishable. They happen so closely together. And second, salvation on the basis of works is nowhere else taught in the rest of the Bible. In fact, Jesus speaks on salvation in the rest of the Gospels. The rest of the biblical authors don't affirm this either. So, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I think, instead of primarily focusing on our actions, he's looking at our attitudes. So he's telling us to adopt an attitude which makes forgiveness possible. We are to adopt an attitude that makes forgiveness possible. In a word, we might could say this is being humble, being humble before God. Jesus gave much of this kind of attitude in the Beatitudes. 
So we see poor in spirit, meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart. Jesus gave us a little bit of an idea of what this kind of attitude was like. Um, and the attitude of, of, that Jesus is after is one that says something like this. I actually don't have what it takes to earn your forgiveness. It's an attitude that says, I'm not impressive. I'm not impressive like the hypocrites praying on the street corners to be seen. I'm not like that. I can't be like that. I'm not impressive. I don't want to speak to you, God, with empty phrases, but with a genuine and humble heart. That's what Jesus is trying to teach here. This is the kind of attitude that Jesus is after. And for us, this is the kind of attitude that comes as a result of God's prior actions for us. You see, this attitude isn't something that we muster up and that we can just will up by ourselves. It's actually impossible for you to do that on your own. You need God to work in your life in order for it to initially happen. God has to do something in order for you to get this kind of attitude. It's not something that we can gain on our own. See, God's forgiveness is one that is gracious. It's not transactional. It's not something that we can earn. It's something that he gives. And this forgiveness is one of the primary benefits of the gospel. This is how God initiates a relationship with us. You'll notice in this prayer, the term for sin that he uses is debts. Paul picks up this very same word. Dane used this, this passage last Sunday. I just want to reiterate it and, and do a little highlighting myself. Colossians 2.13 says this, speaking to Christians. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Think about the reality that he tells us we're in. Dead in our trespasses, completely having no life. He says those have been forgiven. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. That's what God has done. But this is how he did it. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. So notice in that verse, where does he say the sins of Christians are? The phrase that he used is nailed to the cross. Nailed there. They stay there. You no longer bear them. By faith in Christ, you no longer pay the penalty for them. Jesus has paid the penalty for them by nailing them there, and they stay there. That means you don't have to be guilty. You don't have to be shameful before God in this kind of way on the basis of your salvation. You can trust that your sins have been fully and finally forgiven and paid for. This is the kind of forgiveness that God gives. I read this quote. thought it was helpful. It's from John Stott. He says, Once our eyes have been opened to the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear, by comparison, extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of, of the offenses of others, it proves that we have a minimized view of our own. Do you see your sins as being enormous? Enough to put Jesus on the cross. That's the place to start. So just an application if you're in this room today and you would say that you believe in Jesus, this is an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
There are good and right tests that we give to ourselves for the sake of eternity that see where our hearts actually are. And Jesus gives us a warning. So we must listen and heed this. So the question is, do you realize how far Jesus went to pay for your sins? It's much, nor, much more enormous than we naturally think. If you're here today and, you're, if you, and you wouldn't say you're a believer, or you're struggling with faith, you're not quite sure where you stand, um, the word that Jesus used here for sin is debt, right? Uh, so we know what debt feels like in this life. Uh, it can be a burden, isn't it? Debt's something that we want to get rid of. We don't want to keep. And so spiritually, that feeling is the same, except like a million times worse. This debt is enormous. It's a record of debt that God has for you that you must pay or you must entrust it to Jesus for him to pay. Those are the options according to Jesus. So what will you do with it? Do you want Jesus to cover over that debt to forgive it forever? Or do you want to carry that debt around with you and the burdens that come along with it? Jesus wants you to be free, completely free of that feeling. Trust him. He can free you from this horrible burden. The forgiveness that God gives is gracious, kind, patient. So then we can consider what kind of forgiveness are we to give? This is the second part. The forgiveness that we give. Remember where the rubber meets the road in the test of the Lord's Prayer. It's in our forgiveness of others, right? That's what we just saw. Um, <clears throat> our forgiveness of others is a test of God's forgiveness of us. And as we just saw, this test is an attitude before it is an action. It's an attitude before it's an action. Uh, I want to suggest to you that any living and breathing person knows that forgiveness is difficult. Okay, here's a very theoretical example. Okay, kids in the room, I want you to listen, and uh, I'll give you a big high five if you can tell me the lesson that Sally should learn in this story, okay? Listen for Sally. Let's say there's two kids playing, a kid named Sally and a kid named Kimberly. So little kid Sally is playing with little kid Kimberly. They're having a play date. And little kid Sally takes a toy from little kid Kimberly. Have you kids ever experienced that? Someone taking your toy? Uh, how do you think little kid Kimberly is going to respond? How do kids typically respond when a toy is taken? Well, sometimes you can cry. That happens a lot. Sometimes a, not a good reaction is to, to respond with force. You might hit somebody. Uh, we would not recommend either one. Uh, but that's typically what happens. So Sally takes the toy from Kimberly. Now let's say that over time, these two little girls have many more play dates. And Sally takes a toy during every single one of them. She's just the toy taker. Uh, the same thing happens at all these play dates. More toys are stolen, and there's more crying, and there's more anger. And it turns out that all of these toys that Kimberly, or that Sally has been taking from Kimberly, have been very valuable. And eventually, Sally, she's taken so many toys that she can't possibly pay back Kimberly. She's lost some of the toys. Some of them are so valuable that she doesn't even have enough money in her piggy bank to pay for them. So, 
let's say that this really puts a strain on their relationship. It's, a hard, it's hard for them to be friends with one another. Uh, but let's say that over several years, when Sally finally comes to her senses, maybe this is in middle school, uh, you have an opportunity, at least when you get older, to uh, reach a certain degree of maturity where you can ask forgiveness. And so Sally does that. She goes to Kimberly, you know, let's say in middle school, and she begs for forgiveness. And Kimberly responds positively. She does forgive, and she, she grants Sally's request. So she doesn't hold it against her anymore. And this is amazing. Sally thought she would never forgive her, but she did anyway. And Sally is very thankful. So now let's say Sally is in middle school. She has another friend named Joy, a complete different friend. Sally loans Joy a pack of gum, okay? They make a deal that Joy is supposed to pay back Sally with the same pack of gum at a later time, okay? So one week goes by, two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and there's no pack of gum. So Sally's like, where's my gum? Joy, she's devastated. She says, I know I was supposed to give you that, that pack of gum. And she begs for mercy. She says, I'll give you the pack of gum tomorrow. I actually have that same flavor of gum at my house. I can just bring it to school tomorrow and we'll be, we'll be all set, right? But Sally is very angry. She's very upset. And she's standing in front of the whole class. Everybody's looking at them. And Sally then pushes Joy in front of the whole class and says, we're not friends anymore because you haven't given me back my gum. Emotionally, Sally crushes joy. The classroom kids, they then remember that Sally had a pretty good relationship with Kimberly before. And they remember how forgiving Kimberly was toward Sally. And it turns out, Kimberly, she's the class president. Everybody looks up to her. They're like, wow. Kimberly's pretty awesome. So the classroom kids, they go and tell Kimberly's story. They say, well, Sally pushed Joy because she didn't give her a pack of gum. Now, how do you think Kimberly feels? She's saddened and probably rightly angered. She remembers that she has forgiven Sally of so much, but now Sally was unwilling to forgive her friend Joy of so little. Kimberly goes to Sally and she says this, you know the toys that you stole from me in elementary school? They were precious toys. They were passed down to me from my grandmother. You can't even buy those toys anymore, and I never got them back. I know some of them were destroyed, so you couldn't even give them back, but I forgave you anyway. Now you're unwilling to forgive Joy for not giving you a pack of gum? My forgiveness should have meant something to you. I thought your heart would have been changed so that you would forgive others too. Okay, some of you might have noticed in the story that I could title this the imperfect parable of the unforgiving Sally. Uh, Jesus tells a much better parable in Matthew chapter 18 uh, about the unforgiving servant. And it comes after the disciples ask a question. It's a question that many of us have. How, so you tell us to forgive. How many times are we supposed to give, forgive someone? And Jesus gives them a straight-up answer. Peter says, as many as seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. He's making a point. You two forgive a lot. 
Jesus then gives this parable of the unforgiving servant. But instead of Kimberly forgiving, it's a king. Instead of the initial debt being toys, it was an utterly unattainable amount of money. Instead of the second debt being gum, it was a very small amount of money. And the first debt that the servant had was unattainable, unachievable to, to give back to the king. The king forgave a very great debt. So that's the story. A great forgiveness should have resulted in great forgiveness in return to others. And so I have just a few thoughts here on the practice of forgiveness. How do we actually do this? Jesus gives us this parable, and here's a few principles. You can write these down. The first is that forgiveness starts with the truth. Forgiveness starts with the truth. Truth-telling is the way of forgiveness. In Jesus' parable, the king and the servant were honest about the debt owed. Kimberly and Sally were very clear on what was being forgiven, right? It was the, it was the toys. Um, but how many times do we neglect this step in our relationships? Getting at the truth of the matter. Forgiveness cannot really move forward underneath a cover-up of excuses. You can't make up excuses constantly. And you can't have just a bunch of half-truths either. The matter must be known and not hidden. And it must not just remain mysterious. The second thing is this. So that's forgiveness starts with truth. Second is forgiveness requires understanding. Requires understanding on behalf of both parties. In Jesus' parable, this is on behalf of the king. Kimberly understood Sally's sad predicament, right? She recognized that she would never be able to pay back all the toys that she owed. And nevertheless, Kimberly was willing to forgive. What must happen in forgiveness is that we must deliberately seek to understand the other person. If someone has wronged you, in order to forgive an insurmountable debt, you have to understand the place that they're at. This is often a hard, hard step to take. Our natural hearts don't want to understand from the other person's perspective, right? We want to hold a grudge against them. We want to make them suffer for what they have made us to suffer. We want to think about how bad the other person is rather than how bad we've been. But forgiveness requires understanding. The third thing is that forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, the king cancels the debt of the servant. Kimberly canceled Sally's debt to her. Um, but the truth is, the servant couldn't pay, and Sally couldn't pay either. The king and Kimberly must take the cost themselves. Forgiveness requires that you take a cost, oftentimes. So forgiveness means then when, that when you could make another suffer, you are willing to not make them suffer. Forgiveness is costly, at least in that way. And the truth is, if you're not willing to grant forgiveness, if you're not willing to take the cost yourself, you bear the cost in other ways. Um, you might suffer underneath anger and resentment of another person. Um, our natural hearts want to give people what we think they deserve, not what they don't deserve. And that doesn't reflect God's heart in the slightest. So forgiveness is always costly. Fourth, forgiveness aims at restoration. Forgiveness aims at restoration. At the end of the parable of the unforgiving servant, the king lets the servant go. In our story about the two little kids and their play dates, Kimberly sought to restore a relationship with Sally. Remember, she tried to talk to her. I still want to be friends with you. Um, but at the end of the story, the servant to the king in Jesus' story, he was free. 
he sought a restored relationship. The text says that he let him go. He let him go. He sought a restored relationship. So forgiveness, when it's fully processed, on behalf of two parties, let's say, means that we're aiming at restoration with one another. That means at least that we do a lot of things ourselves. For instance, internally, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we like to cheer on people's um, uh, their failures rather than their successes. Internally, we want someone else to fail. Forgiveness means that that actually flips. We don't want to see them fail anymore. We want to see them making successes. Um, it also means that we're not replaying the tape in our mind, sitting around thinking about over and over again what somebody else has done wrong to us. If you've truly forgiven somebody, you're, you're, you know that about yourself, but you pause when you feel yourself about to play the tape again. So forgiveness aims at restoration, and those kinds of activities internally keep us from that kind of restoration internally too. But the sad reality is, in both of these stories, is that the servant nor Sally had a change of heart. So the end of the story is this. And the question for you, in your relationships, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Kimberly wanted Sally's heart to be changed. The king wanted the servant's heart to be changed. So where is your heart? If you have an immeasurable amount of debt of sin forgiven by God, surely you can understand someone else's predicament. You can bear the relatively minor cost of offering forgiveness, and you could aim at restoration with others. I'll end with this. Don't get stuck in a bad dream. Don't get stuck in a bad dream. Guilt, shame, bitterness, resentment, revenge, they're like real life. They are a bad dream in real life. And if you experience those things, you know that to be true. Don't live in a bad dream. But if it's true that guilt and shame are finally and fully taken by God on the cross and nailed there, you no longer bear the burden of that guilt and shame any longer. And if it's true that God then enables forgiveness to happen so that we're not bitter, we're not resentful, we're not taking revenge, God can take care of that too. We can trust him. This is the forgiveness that God gives that enables us to then forgive others too. Uh, friends, we're about to celebrate a tangible picture of forgiveness in real life. We're going to see this through baptism. There's a picture in baptism that's really encouraging. One is that uh, when somebody is baptized, it's completely on the power of another person. They're going underwater without any power of their own, dipped under, and they're brought up by another person's power too. In forgiveness, this is the very same way. So let's celebrate the work of God's life in these two friends, and let's pray to God, asking that he'll bless their lives. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your forgiveness of us. Help us then to forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen.